Hey, and thanks for tuning in to the Father's House podcast. The Father's House exists to see people discover life in Jesus. We hope that today's message brings you fresh life and renewed hope as you listen. Enjoy. Today we are in week nine of our series called The Answer, where we are studying through the book of 1 Corinthians all summer long. And uh, for those joining us for the first time, welcome, good to have you. If somehow you've been able to be out of church for the last nine weeks and it's your first time back, Jesus says he missed you. Thanks for coming back to church. Uh, but wherever you're at on that continuum, let me briefly catch you up to speed so that we can, we can all be on the same page as we get in today. Uh, the reason we are studying through the book of 1 Corinthians is because as you study their cultural context, you discover quickly that we have a lot in common with this ancient city. Uh, if you'd like a more exhaustive list of those commonalities, feel free to refer back to any of the prior sermons in this series, especially near the beginning. But for brevity's sake, Corinth was a large, uh, large city, port city, with people coming and going constantly for work, and it was well known as a place of, of great wealth and influence. In fact, its influence spanned far beyond the borders of that city, and it affected the greater Roman world. But in addition to being known for its wealth and its influence, it was also known as a very sexually progressive city and a sinfully indulgent city, and so much so that, as we've said every single week, it was the kind of city you could go to be whoever you wanted to be, do whatever you wanted to do, indulge in whatever you wanted to indulge in, and not just be tolerated, but celebrated for it. Obviously, you can see the similarities with the city we find ourselves in. But like us, the Apostle Paul believed that that was the perfect place to plant a church because he believed that the light of the gospel shines bright in the darkest of places. And so he plants this amazing church and hundreds of people begin to get saved and baptized and, and brought into the family of God. In fact, it grew so, so quickly and so healthily that he expected he could leave after a year and a half. And in capable hands, he headed out and began to plant churches throughout Syria. But shortly after his departure, he receives some frantic letters from this church because they're discovering as new believers it's quite a bit more difficult than they anticipated to live for Christ in this wicked Corinthian culture. They love God, but the ways of Corinth were making their way into the local church. And so Paul responds with this letter, and one by one, he begins to address the problems and the issues, and with each and every one of those, he displays for them how the gospel provides an answer for the situation they find themselves in, hence the title, The Answer. And as we've said each week, since our problems are a lot like their problems and our city is a lot like their city, then it stands to reason that our solution will be the same as their solution. As we've experienced now for almost five years, the gospel still works. It still provides an answer in a dark space to show us how to live for Christ in a culture like San Francisco in the nine o'clock service said, hey, man. So each week we've taken a problem, we've contextualized that problem from the chapter and we've discovered how the gospel still provides an answer for us. And today will be no different. We are jumping into chapter nine and we will look at yet another problem that I, I believe is, is prominent even today in the modern church. But it, as it feels like I've had to do every single week, I'm gonna provide yet another disclaimer as we get into this text. Uh, the cha ninth chapter of 1 Corinthians is 27 verses long and today we're only 
only going to look at the last four of those verses, which might cause some to ask why I have ignored the first 23 of those verses. And for those curious, uh, there's a twofold reason I've ignored them. Number one, some of the content in nine uh, is exactly the same as the content we discussed last week as we considered food sacrificed to idols. So no need to be redundant. If you missed it, you can check that out online. Uh, but truthfully, the, the, the main reason I don't want to look at the beginning of chapter 9 is because Paul spends most of his time talking about how ministers of the gospel and preachers of the gospel should be compensated for their services. And that just makes me feel really uncomfortable. And so I don't want to talk about it and I'm not going to talk about it. I got the mic and I can do what I want to do. Uh, but with that, for anyone curious, I just will say this. Uh, Robin, myself, and the Apostle Paul share a very similar conviction about not being a financial burden on the community that God has called us to serve. So you can find out what that means if you want to go back and read it, but I ain't talking about it today. So with that, uh, having dodged the first 23 verses, let's get into our text for this morning. First uh, Corinthians chapter nine, verse 24. He says this, don't you realize that in a race, everyone runs, but only one person gets the prize. So run to win. Can we say that together? So run to win. All athletes are disciplined in their training. They do it with a, to get a crown that will fade away, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. So I run with purpose in every step. I love that language. I'm not just shadow boxing. I discipline my body like an athlete, training it to do what it should. Otherwise, I fear that after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified. This is probably one of my favorite portions in the letter of 1 Corinthians because every time I read it, especially that last line, it stirs me. It, it, it inspires me to do something for God. And, and I pray this morning that this scripture and all that we're gonna unpack would stir all of us together because I believe if we have ears to hear what the Holy Spirit would speak to the church this morning, you will leave here today with a fresh vigor and a fresh passion to run the race that God has called you to run. And so with that, let me give you a title. Uh, in a previous sermon in this series, uh, we called it Carnal Christianity in light of a problem that Paul was unpacking. And in similar title fashion today, if I could synopsize this portion of scripture in title form, I think that I would call it casual Christianity. Another problem in the church, casual Christianity. Uh, let's pray. Holy Spirit, speak to us today. Thank you for the hunger and the passion represented in the room right now. God, we ask that um, as we go to this text and we look at these analogies, that you would inspire each of us to pick up the pace and run the race that you've called us to run. May we not grow weary in doing good, but God, may we have a zeal and a passion to chase after everything you've called us to chase after in this life. In Jesus' name, and the church said, amen. Amen. So every week, okay, all right. Uh, every week, uh, we have talked about the fact that there are a number of similarities between our city and the city of Corinth. And today, we get to discover yet another similarity among our two cities, and that is a love for sports. Any, anyone who just loves, loves sports? I know that not everybody, okay, a lot of us, yeah. I know not everybody in the room is into sports, uh, but by and large, San Francisco is a sport-loving city. Um, according to Google, the source of all wisdom and truth, uh, 
San Francisco is among the top 10 sports-loving cities in the nation. We love ourselves some sports. Uh, and Corinth was no different. They loved sports in Corinth. In fact, uh, it was home to the Isthmian Games, which was at the time the second largest athletic competition in the world, second only to the Olympiad. And so Paul, now knowing the audience he's speaking to, he begins to use a number of athletic analogies to describe what we would know as the life of faith or the Christian faith. And he uses these two, running and shadow boxing. Now, we won't spend any time today talking about shadow boxing because essentially he uses that very briefly and it's only to support his main analogy of run, running, though I think that there would be plenty of spiritual application about somebody who is just swinging in the air but never actually getting into the ring and fighting with somebody else on the other side. They look like they know what they're doing, but they haven't proven that they know what they're doing. They're just acting it out. But that's another sermon for another day. Instead, today, we will look at this athletic analogy that I know very little about, running. Any runners in the room? Okay, no, it's okay. You could, yeah, you can put your hand up. I know I've shamed runners many times from this stage, so everyone's afraid to acknowledge themselves. All right, how about 5K? 5K people? Okay, 10K people? Uh, marathon people? A few of you? Any uh, ultra marathon people? Just Isaac in the back, right? It's like you run as far as you would drive. Yeah, those, those, are, the, those are those people. Yeah, I, I've, I've made it no secret from this stage that I am not a runner. I just don't get it. It's not my thing. I'm like, I just can think of so many better things to do for that long, but, I, but some of you love it, and you're very proud of it, and you tell me how proud you are of yourself, and that's, and that's great. Uh, I, just, I just don't get it. Um, the closest I get to running is I do own a pair of hokas. Isn't that what you call them? Hokas, hoka running shoes. Uh, I don't know if that counts for anything, but in full disclosure, I've never actually run in them. <laughs> I, uh, I bought them after I went on a really long prayer walk back in January around uh, the Sunset District, and I'm like, oh, my knees hurt from walking so long, so... That's the only time I use. I'm basically a poser. I play dress up as a runner. That's about as good as it gets, gets for me, but, but I'm not a runner. Um, however, despite my distaste for running, I, I know that it is a very popular thing to do here in San Francisco. Uh, in fact, our city is home to over 30 major marathons and runs that attract people from all around the nation. Uh, we have the Golden Gate Marathon and the Mermaid Marathon and uh, Run for the Cure and the Polar Run and all of these different runs for various causes. But as I look at this text, I can't help but think about and compare and contrast two of the most popular runs in our city. Uh, the first of which was last weekend, uh, affectionately known as the San Francisco Marathon. Uh, for those unfamiliar with the San Francisco Marathon, uh, it is a very serious run for very serious runners. Uh, in fact, it attracted over 29,000 people last weekend from all around the nation to come, actually from all around the world to come and run in this marathon. And get this, those runners on average finished the 26-mile run in four and a half hours or a mile time of about 10 minutes per mile. That's the average. I'm like, what? Four and a half hours? That's like a Lord in the Rings and a half. Like that's, that's, a long, that's a long run. I can do a lot of stuff in 10 minutes, but a whole lot of stuff in four and a half hours. But people just running, they just ran for four and a half miles. <laughs> but if you think that's impressive, you'll be impressed with the guy who actually 
won the race. His name is uh, Bryson something, and this is him. Look at him, a stunning example of a runner. This guy, he completed the race in two and a half hours or an average mile time of five and a half minutes for 26 miles straight. I'm like, that dude had rollerblades on, all right? He did not run that fast, absolutely not. Look at him, an Adonis, that guy. Just what a great example of running. But San Francisco Marathon is, is a serious run. It's for serious runners. And if you were to go to their website before the run, you would have noticed that the culture of this run, it advertises to very serious runners. In fact, the opening page of their website showed ways to prepare, to discipline yourself and prepare so that you could make it the whole 26-mile track. Now, as I think about that run, I can't help but compare and contrast it to another very popular run in our city known as Bay to Breakers. Anyone ever heard of Bay to Breakers? Yeah, okay, you're laughing because you know what I'm talking about. Uh, Beta Breakers is not a very serious run. It is not a 26-mile run. In fact, it is a seven-and-a-half-mile moving party from the Embarcadero <laughs> to Ocean Beach. It's not intended or marketed to serious people. In fact, if you were to go to the website for Beta Breakers today, this is what you would see. Run, jog, or dance to the finish line. <laughs> This is how this run is pitched. It's not intended to attract very serious runners. And you can tell that it is marketed to a very specific clientele as you begin to see some of the photos, which are gonna come up behind me right now, of the various people that show up to enjoy themselves in this race. Yeah, a number of ways that people dress up. Elvis runs in this race. No, no one shows up serious. They just kind of dress up, go from one side to the city to the other. People are handing out drinks from the sidelines. They're partying, they're dancing all the way from the Embarcadero to Ocean, <laughs> to Ocean Beach. Yeah, there they are. Look at them having such a great time. <laughs> now, as I compare these runs, I, I, I think they, the cultural dichotomy between the San Francisco Marathon and Beta Breakers provides the perfect illustration of what Paul is attempting to convey here in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He's saying, you get to choose what kind of runner you're going to be in this race called faith. Are you going to be an SF Marathon kind of believer? Or are you going to be the Beta Breakers kind of believer? You know, what's interesting in Beta Breakers, the average runtime. Two and a half hours to complete the race, a 20-minute mile. It's about how long it takes when you're drinking and dancing your way to the finish line. And he's saying, you can run a five-and-a-half-minute mile or you can run a 20-minute mile. You can be serious and intentional about the things that God has called you to or you can kind of just fumble your way to the finish line. Essentially, what Paul is saying is, do you want to be this guy or do you want to be this guy? You get to choose. Because listen, both of them signed up for a race. Both of them showed up to the table, plastered a number on their chest, put on their running shoes. Both of them went to the starting line. They both set out to go somewhere, but only one of them lined up with the intention, I'm gonna win this race. Only one of them lined up saying, I'm not just gonna run, I'm going to run to win. And now, now, to be clear, Paul is not suggesting that the, the life of faith should be a joyless sprint where you're just serious all the time and you don't enjoy anything. Bryce probably has never eaten a hamburger in his life. The guy is miserable, right? 
He's not saying like, come on, it's kingdom business. Get serious. God, church. No. Like, you know, that's not how we roll around here. Jesus said, I've come to give you life and life to the fullest, life abundantly. There should be some joy in your journey. In fact, that's one of our values around here. Laugh often. We believe that life should be enjoyed and so should church. So we don't take ourselves too seriously. We enjoy the journey. So Paul's not trying to suck the joy out of faith. However, he is saying, when it comes to your race of faith, you should have some grit. You should have some aggression. There should be some intention and some purpose in every single moment of this journey called faith. You have not been called to simply come and warm the seats as casual Christians for an hour and 15 minutes on a Sunday morning while we do nothing for the kingdom of God. No, we don't just come to join the race, we should be running with the intention to win this race, to run after everything that God has called us to run after on this side of eternity. But, but that is not the, the mindset that many of these believers in Corinth had. Many of the Christians had gotten casual about the things of God. They checked the box. They went to the church even within a one and a half year time period, many of them have just been, were just becoming content to exist as believers, but they'd lost all their grit. And I think that that probably describes not just an ancient church in Corinth, I think that probably describes the state of many believers in the big C church today. We got a lot of pink gorillas out there dancing but man, we need some more people that are truly running the race with intention and aggression and some grit. But I think the reason that so many have, have faltered in their pace or failed to, to run with any intention is because we have neglected or even worse, rejected a word that Paul uses here to describe the mindset and the intention of someone who was going to run a race in an effort to win. And that is the word discipline. Everyone loves that word, discipline. I think by and large, the modern church has oversold the idea of desire and we have neglected discipline. And, and as a pastor who communicates, I'll be the first to raise my hand and say, I'm partially at fault for that as well at times. I think that we have, have pressed this idea of desire only, this, this privilege over pain mentality. It's, I get to serve God, and I get to do this, and I get to do that, but never I need to, or never I have to. And, and to some extent, that was necessary. For decades, there was nothing but dead religion that was being peddled from the stages of the Christian church. If you take, if you take discipline, void of desire, you will always get dead religion. That's how it works. And for years, that's all the church offered. Follow all the rules, do all the stuff. That way you qualify for all that God has for you. And so yes, it was necessary for people to come around the backside of that and correct and remind that the fundamental difference between the church of Jesus Christ and every other religion on the planet is in fact desire. We are offered relationship with our God unlike any other religion. No other religion on planet earth is founded in the self-sacrifice of its founder. No, we are starting this whole thing out by love. It is love that drew us unto him. He loved us while we were still sinners, when we wanted nothing to do with him. For God so loved the world. That's what separates us from everybody else. But we need to be careful that in our peddling of desire, 
that we don't neglect discipline. Yes, everything we do is primarily the response. It is a desire to serve the one who gave himself for us. But there are also times where we need to have some discipline when it comes to the faith. If, if desire without discipline equals dead religion, then discipline without desire, or excuse me, if, you know what I'm saying. It's D words. I'll say it better at the next one. But it leads to delusion. This idea that, oh, I just have, I'm only going to do things for God when I feel like it and I have a desire to do those things. No, 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 no. Discipline is what motivates action when desire is lacking. Discipline is what keeps you doing the right thing when you don't feel like doing the right thing. If I just waited until I had a desire to work out, I would lift the pink weights at my house once a month because no one ever feels like beating themselves up. It's not enjoyable. But discipline keeps you coming back to, to the discomfort of daily exercise. If I waited until I felt like it for desire to kick in before I did the dishes at our house, which is my job, no need to brag about it, but I'm just gonna say it so you know. No, we would be eating off of paper products. I'd have no desire to do dishes. But discipline keeps me washing the forks so that the sink is clean the next morning when I walk out there. And same is true for faith. Yes, everything we do is primarily devoted and desired, but there needs to be some discipline that kicks in. Because listen, let me remind you, there will be times when desire wanes, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't do the thing. Like, there will be days where you desire to read the Bible and you long, you're hungry for the word of God. And so you wake up in the morning and you read, but then there's other days where you don't desire to read and you'd rather scroll social media or read the news. I will tell the truth. There will be days when you desire to worship. Sundays where you walk in this room and you're like, man, I can't wait to get to church, lift my hands, give God the praise and honor that he's due. Woo! And then there will be other Sundays where you've had a rough week Something disappointing happened where your kids are acting wildly in the backseat on the way to church and the only hand you want to raise is the one to discipline them, <laughs> right? Desire wanes. There will be times when you desire to tithe. That's not true. You'll never desire to tithe. That's, that's a bad example. <laughs> but in those moments where you have no desire, you better be able to lean back on a preconditioned discipline that you've developed in your life, because if you have no discipline, then your faith is fickle. If you have no discipline, then at best you'll become spiritually stagnant, or at worst, you'll become spiritually decimated because your life is governed by the fickle nature of your emotions, the up and down, the up and down, the up and down, the porpoise Christianity, but there's no stability to your life. And this is why Paul says, I discipline myself like an athlete. I take it serious. I'm not just showing up in a monkey costume to run a race. No, I don't wait until I feel like it to do something. I'm disciplined and I'm gonna run whether I feel like it or not. My pastor used to say it like this. I don't wait to feel my way into actions. I act my way into feelings. I'm not waiting until I'm suddenly compelled emotionally to do something. No, I just put one foot in front of the other and I keep running the race that God has called me to run because I've disciplined myself to understand that when desire is lacking, I'm still gonna chase after everything that God has called me to chase after. And he says, I invite you to do the same. I implore you, run your race. Run it to win. So now would be the appropriate time to pose one of those questions that I love to, to pose. 
that moment in the sermon where I ask us to personalize everything we've discussed so that we don't apply this to someone else's life or the ancient church's life, but we apply it to ourselves. So let me ask you, how are you running your race? You. How are you running your race? Because it's your race. You've been the one he asked to step in and put one foot in front of the other. Do you have some aggression and some grit about the things of God? As Paul says, are you running with purpose in every step? Like every moment, every opportunity, every stride matters. Have you developed a discipline in your faith that is not predicated on your emotional state in that moment? Or is your giving and your serving and your reading and your praying and your faith still being held hostage by your emotional state from moment to moment to moment? How are you running your race? And if you don't like the way you'd have to answer that question honestly this morning, then what I'd like to do in our remaining moments together is I wanna look at a couple of thoughts from scripture that I believe will prepare us and inspire us to not just run, but run to win. To trade in the pink gorilla costume for a pair of hokas and actually use them for their intended purpose. The first one is this. If we're gonna run to win, we need to lose some weight. Then stop putting donut holes on the porch, Pastor Tim. <laughs> True story. I was at the doctor's office this last week because um, my doctor uh, has been annoying me since I turned 40 to come in. Apparently, you're supposed to come get checked up every year when you, when you turn 40 and beyond. And so finally, I caved and I went in to go for this doctor's appointment. And I'm sitting in the room waiting for the doctor to show up. And she walks in and she greets me cordially. Hi, how you doing? Da, da, da. And then she does the thing that doctors do. She, she starts looking at the computer and just, you know, typing away and mumbling things under her breath. Like, yeah, so it's well, interesting. Okay. So. And then the next thing she says to me, she looks, she doesn't even look at me. She's just staring at the computer and she's like, well, looks like you've gained 10 pounds since the last time we saw you. So uh, that's not good. And I'm like, <laughs> she says, but you know, everybody gained 10 pounds from, from COVID. So as long as you're willing to lose it, then I think we'll be fine. And I'm like, you don't know me. So... Being the challenger that I am, I piped in and I said, hey, doc, I don't know if you know this, but you know, muscle weighs more than fat. So how do you know that I didn't gain 10 pounds of muscle? And I kid you not, this is what she does. She stops typing. She looks over the edge of the computer screen. She tips down her glasses. She looks me up and down. And she goes, you also need a tetanus shot. <laughs> so apparently I need to lose some weight. Um, but that's not the kind of weight I'm talking about this morning. Before everybody gets offended, let me explain what I mean. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, this is not the only place that we see the analogy of a race used in Scripture. In fact, it is one of the most popular uh, analogies used to describe the life of faith. Paul himself uses it 12 times as he writes his letters in the New Testament. But perhaps one of the most famous uh, running the race analogies used is the one in Hebrews chapter 12 uh, that, that reads like this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us. Now, the writer of Hebrews, he tells us that if we are going to run in an effort where we win the race, we need to strip off some weight 
especially the sin that so easily tries to entangle us and take us out. Now, I was preaching on this text a few years ago, and uh, one of our leaders, Seth Carminati, who's sitting right over here with the beautiful dreadlocks, I asked him to come up on stage, and, and I said, all right, I want you to run from one side of the stage to the other. So he sprints clear across the stage to the other side and did it like a gazelle, flawlessly. Probably all the years of running from the law where he was training. Um, just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. He's a good boy. Uh, but then afterwards, uh, I, I, I said to Mark, I want you to come back over here. And I strapped a couple of 60-pound dumbbells to his side. And I said, now I want you to run to the other side of the stage. And as you'd imagine, he was incapable of running from this side of the stage to that side of the stage at the same pace. Why? Because he had a bunch of dead weight strapped to him. You cannot run if you got a bunch of weight strapping you down. And the same is true in the spirit. You cannot win the race. You cannot run with endurance. You cannot truly make progress if you've got a bunch of dead spiritual weight strapped to the side. And spiritual weight comes in a number of forms. It isn't just sin. The writer of Hebrews said especially sin, but it is not exclusively sin. There are many forms, various forms of spiritual weight. Shame can be a spiritual weight that tries to drag you down. Regret can be a weight that tries to drag you down. Wounds from your past, words that hurt, unforgiveness in your heart. These can be weights that keep you from making any progress. Disappointment can be a weight that slows you down. Unanswered prayers can feel like a weight that weighs you down. Just the day-to-day -day life, the demands can feel crippling and debilitating and, and make you feel like all you've got is this left in your pace in the race. And yes, of course, as he says, sin especially can be a weight that tries to drag you down. Not that one time slip up, but the repetitive, I can't stop doing it. I told God I'd never do it again, but then I did it again kind of sin can be a weight that tries to drag you down and keep you from running with endurance. And anyone who's tried to run with those sorts of weights strapped to their side, you understand how challenging this suggestion is. To just strip off the weights, it falls into that familiar category of things far easier said than done. The, the, the cruel carrot dangle. I, of course I want to strip those weights off. Who wouldn't want to get rid of the repetitive sin and the disappointment and the anger and the frustration and the unforgiveness and... I would love to get rid of all those things, but I don't feel like I can. But the beauty of this text is that we're not just left with a suggestion. We are given the solution as to how we strip these weights off. The writer, after telling us to run the race that has been set before us with endurance and strip off every weight, tells us exactly how we are to accomplish such a task. In the very next verse, verse two, he says this, we do this, by fixing our eyes on Jesus, who is the author, the perfecter, the finisher of our faith. How do I strip it off? We fix our eyes on Jesus. That word fix in the Greek is the word aphoreo, and it literally means to take your attention off of something so that you can focus your attention on something else. Quite literally, it means that it is impossible for you to fix your eyes on Jesus if you are fixated on some other things. 
As long as the focus of your life is the sin and the past and the hurt and the regret, you will never see Jesus and you will never run with endurance. You'll never win because all you see are the weights. But if we can elevate our gaze, if we can see Jesus, if we can stop focusing on the shrapnel around us, but we can fix our eyes on the King of Kings, then weight by weight by weight by weight, these things begin to fall off of us and we find ourselves picking up the pace and running with intention again. And I know that that is a very oversimplified answer to a complicated problem. But man, that's what I love about the answer of the gospel. It is not complicated. It is simple in nature. Why? Because if I fix my eyes on Jesus, I don't see my sin any longer. All I see is his grace and his love and his forgiveness. If I fix my eyes on Jesus, I can't hold unforgiveness against that person because I see how much he's forgiven me of. If I fix my eyes on Jesus, I can't see my past because I'm too, and I'm enamored with the future that he has for me. And if I fix my eyes on Jesus, then the suffering that I'm facing right now pales in comparison to the suffering that he endured because he endured the cross and he scorned his shame for the joy that was set before him. And that joy is me. He saw me. And so if he endured such pain to get to me, then I can go through some stuff in life if it means I can get to him. To quote the hymnist, if we fix our eyes on Jesus, the things of earth grow strangely dim in light of his glory and his grace. And man, even as I'm saying this, I can't help but think about these people right over here. As I think about fixing our eyes on Jesus, many of you know that we just lost a, an incredible member of this community, a gal named Brittany, who had fought for years with cancer. And to be honest, um, I think a lot of us were pretty surprised by her passing because we were all pretty convinced that God was gonna heal her. We'd even seen some evidence of that over the last few months and we expected, okay, there's gonna be a miracle here. But when she passed into eternity, I think there was this sense of disappointment, shock, because we, we all believed that God was gonna answer those prayers. But last Sunday, I'm standing down here and I'm worshiping and I look over to this corner of the room where this beautiful family is right now and I see Brittany's husband, Joe. I see your mom, Cheryl. I see Ashlyn and Annalise, her sisters. And they've got their gaze and their hands lifted to heaven as they sing, come on my soul, don't you get shy on me. Lift up your voice because you've got a lion inside of those lungs. Get up and praise the Lord. If anybody in the room that day had a reason to be focused on disappointment and pain, it was them. But they know that the weight of those things is far more than they can bear. So what did they do? They fixed their eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of their faith, who welcomed Brittany into his everlasting arms as she crossed over her finish line of faith and joined the great cloud of witnesses that now looks back over all of us and says, run your race in such a way that you would finish well. Man, may we run with that kind of intention. But the only way we can do that is if we get rid of some dead weight. But, but Paul tells us that that is not the only way 
the only mindset we need to maintain if we are going to run to win. There is a second thing that he mentions back in our key text that we need to consider before we conclude. Last scripture is the worship team comes and, and we prepare to land the plane here. He says this, so run to win. All athletes are disciplined in their training. They do it to get a crown that will fade away, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Second thought, if we're gonna run to win, we need to remember the crown. Remember the crown. In the Isthmian games, if a runner crossed the finish line first in Corinth, they were awarded a prize. And unlike our modern day athletics, that prize was not fame and fortune. It was not something incredibly valuable. It was a pretty humble offering. Uh, if a runner crossed first, they were given one of these, a crown. And that crown was fashioned of olive branches that were clipped from a tree and woven together in a shape of a crown to be placed on the head of the victor as they crossed that finish line to the adoring applause of the Colosseum of people around them. But, but Paul tells us there's a problem with this crown. It fades. It's temporary. It perishes. Within days of being crowned, this crown would begin to die. The moment it was clipped from the tree, death began to set into this. And in less than a week, what once represented success, victory, applause, was nothing more than a fading memory of a moment that once was, but was never truly intended to last forever. And yet this is the crown that so many of us chase. The temporary things, the perishing crown. As we run our rat race, looking for what's next, the next season, the next relationship status, the next income bracket, the next promotion, the next living situation, next, next, next. As we cross finish line after finish line after finish line, only to discover that the crown it awarded us was more temporary than the journey it took us to get there as we're left wondering, isn't there more to this life than chasing after a bunch of crowns that are gonna die as quickly as I got them? But Paul would come to us today and he would do his best to appeal and remind once again that the answer is not chasing these things. The fulfillment we long for is not found in the temporary satisfactions of the races we run on this side of eternity. And he would say, son, daughter, will you trade in your temporary crown for something that is a bit more eternal? Will you trade in the olive branches for something of value, something that will last, something that will make it through the fires of judgment in eternity? as he did in chapter three with wood, hay, and stubble and comparing it to gold, silver, and jewels. Now he does with crowns. He says, guys, this life ain't it. 
The 80 years you suck air or less here on planet Earth is not it. The things we chase after, they are temporary in nature, but there will be a day where you cross the finish line and you enter into eternity and none of the stuff you've been chasing after in this life will make it into that moment. The only thing that will count for eternity is what you chased after for the kingdom of Jesus Christ while you were on planet Earth. And so I implore you, run after that which is eternal. Run your race. Stop getting diverted to the left or the right and chasing things that are ultimately going to burn away. Pursue that which lasts for eternity. And if I could channel my inner Paul in our remaining moments together, here's what I would say. It's time to pick up the pace. As a church, it is time to pick up the pace. We can't have sidelined people any longer. It's time to run. It's time to trade in those pink suits for some running shoes. If you're weary, steady your weak knees. Those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. They will rise up on wings like eagles. They will run and they will not grow faint. If you're winded, may the wind of God blow again into your lungs like it did to a valley of dry bones. And if you've fallen and you feel like you can't get up, then remember what it says in Proverbs. Though the righteous fall seven times, they dust themselves back off and they get up and run. Again, His mercies are new for you every single morning. So quit sitting on the sidelines feeling sorry for yourself. Pick yourself up. Run your race to win. because there is a crown on the other side of that journey. If you'll get some grit and you'll get some aggression and you'll strip off some weights and you'll say, I'm chasing after that, which Jesus has called me to chase after for eternity. I'm not gonna be casual about the things of God. I'm gonna run to win. Father, in Jesus' name, I thank you for your word this morning. God, I thank you for this trumpet call in the Spirit. We have ears. We hear what the Spirit is saying to us today. Lord, I pray for every weak runner in the room. Would you give them fresh strength? I pray for anyone who's fallen. God, would they sense your loving arms picking them back up? Jesus, give us this discipline this grit, this aggression once again in our faith. Before we conclude, I, I would be remiss if I did not take a moment and do what we do every single week and make time and space for those who, who need to maybe get things right with Jesus before they leave this place today. And the best way I could analogize it is to say this, maybe you're here this morning, you need to start the race. Maybe you signed up at one point, but you never ran. Maybe you ran for a while, but you got tired and you quit. The beauty of the gospel is that it's never too late to start running again. And this morning, if you're here and you need to step into the race because you've been at a distance from Jesus, I wanna pray a very simple prayer of commitment with you before you leave today. But I always like to ask if you'd be bold enough to identify yourself because I pray throughout the week for every hand that we still go up here that God would give you the strength to make it on this journey of faith. So if that's you today and you need to come to Christ, would you just quickly slip up your hand and say, that's me, Tim. I'm joining the race today. Thank you, ma'am. I got you right on, bro. Got you. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, I got you right over there. Cool. Hallelujah. All right, with these few, church, I want you to pray so they don't feel alone in making this decision. Would you just join me in praying this out loud? Say, Jesus, today 
I give you my life. I thank you for giving yours for mine. I choose to follow you, to get into the race. Forgive me of my sin and help me to be your disciple from this day forward until that moment where I cross into eternity and you say, well done, you finished the race. In Jesus' name, come on, amen, 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 amen. Hey, thanks for taking the time to listen to the Father's House podcast. We hope it helped you wherever you're at in your journey. And listen, we wanna pray with you if you're going through something right now that's difficult. You can go to our website, tfh.church, and click on the prayer and praise link tell us how to join you in prayer. Until next time, be blessed.